finding your seats. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn in it to uh, the first chapter of Acts. There's also uh, some Bibles in the pews as well. And of course, our sermon text is always printed in the bulletin. And again, it's printed this week on page 8. But regardless of how you're looking at it, uh, if you're in God's Word, we are again looking at Acts chapter 1. And we're looking this morning at verses 12 through 26. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And it says this. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. This is, remember, after Christ has just ascended back into heaven which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. They're talking, obviously, about the betrayal of Jesus and the the silver that he acquired. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Pleasant this morning, right? And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the field was called in their own language, a kaldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Well, we're continuing uh, this morning in a new series uh, for this new year from the book of Acts. And it was a series that I originally titled New Year, Old Church. But if you notice in your bulletin, I've actually changed the title only three weeks in. And if you know me, I kind of change my mind a lot. That's why. Uh, But I changed the title of the series because I began to realize that the term old, you know, in our context, our day, is often thought of, you know, negatively. We prefer the term vintage, right, or, or antique, uh, or, or seasoned, or experienced, or, you know, whatever it might be. And so I've actually changed the title to Changing Times. There's some irony there. 
right? A sermon about not changing, but here we are changing. Uh, I've, I've changed the title to, to Changing Times, Timeless Church. I think that's more appropriate as we look at the book of Acts, and we'll continue to do so. The times change, as we've seen. The seasons change. Calendars come and go. Years come and go. Cultures and societies and empires and kings and rulers and everything in this world changes. Life changes constantly, but the gospel remains. The gospel remains. The church of Christ Jesus remains. And of course, we've begun to see that in the book of Acts from the very earliest chapter, the very earliest verses. And we'll continue to see that as we move through the story of the first church, the story of the early church, that times change, leaders change, names and places change, but the gospel remains. It's kind of like those movies, right, where they'll say, you know, the, the, the people's names have been changed to protect, you know, themselves, but the story is true. And that's, that's the church, right? The times change, uh, leadership changes, locations change, but the gospel remains. And of course, the reason the gospel remains is because Jesus himself promised us in his earthly ministry that the, the gates of hell, even the gates of hell, would not ultimately overcome or conquer uh, the church. That the gates of hell will not conquer what he has promised and established. And so we begin to see in the book of Acts that if the, the, the situation is the same, the same sin, the same Savior, the same gospel, a church that moves locations and people but is ultimately the same church, then again we're beginning to see in these early weeks and verses that then our responsibility as a Christian also remains. We have the same responsibility today as they did early on in the book of Acts. And so it's a timeless church. That again, we don't need a new strategy or a new gadget or a new widget. The timeless church, the timeless message, and a timeless Savior. And that reminds me of the the story I've, I've shared before where if you remember, uh, remember Vince Lombardi, I've shared that now a couple times, Vince Lombardi, coach of the Packers, one of their early, uh, it was actually before the Super Bowl, it was called the Super Bowl, one of the early uh, championship games, the Packers lose, uh, and the next year, what does he do? The first practice, they gather as a team and he holds up the football, remember? He holds the ball and he says, this is a football, <laughs> this is a football field. This is how you tackle, this is how you block, this is how you score. And again, for people who are professional players, they thought this was beneath them. I mean, of course I know what that is. But his point was you never move past the basics, you only master them all the more. You only perfect them, if you will. And so the same thing is true in the church. We never ultimately move past what we see here in the book of Acts. That times will change and seasons will change, uh, context will change, but the tools we've been given to grow the church, the tools we've been given to ultimately steward and shepherd the church, the tools we've been given to ultimately reach the world are the same. It's the same. Preaching, faithfulness, the gospel, all things that we'll begin to see more and more throughout this book together. And so for today, though, as we look in verses, again, 12 uh, through 26, thereabouts, what we see in this portion are three reminders for the timeless church. The first is that the timeless church gathers. The timeless church gathers. The second is that the timeless church 
praise. And the third is that the timeless church relies on the word of God. The timeless church gathers, the timeless church prays, the timeless church relies on the word of God. So let's consider those in the time that we have. The timeless church gathers. We see that here, obviously, in the upper room gathering of the apostles and their followers. But Hebrews 10 also puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, whether it's in the book of Acts, where we actually get a gathering, if you will, in story form, or whether it's later in uh, the book of Hebrews, what's made plain is that Christians, in the midst of an ever-changing and hostile culture, must be diligent to continually fix our grips on the confession of our faith. To continually fix our grip on the confession of the gospel, that we, we, we root ourselves upon it. We found ourselves deliberately upon the gospel, on, on right believing. That's why we do things even here like the, the Apostles' Creed every week. We fix ourselves on, on right belief, or what we would call orthodoxy, right thinking, but we also fix ourselves on what it looks like to live rightly, on right living, what we would call um, orthopraxy. So what we believe and how we live. And that's when we come together and we, we hear from God, we, we encourage each other, we, we, we get taught the scriptures. But what's made plain in the scripture itself, and of course even in our own experience in this world, is that our vigilant holding or our vigilant defense of those realities, what to believe and how to live, those things are, are, are sitting or will sit on an, on an inevitably crumbling foundation in our lives if we don't gather together. If we just try to preserve the gospel, you know, right belief, right living, on our own, you know, on an island, uh, subjected to all the world's temptations, all the world's struggles, everything the culture throws at us, if we do all that alone, it's only a matter of time before what happens. Our grip slackens. Our grip begins to be loosed. If we neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, like Hebrews says, that foundation ultimately begins to crumble and we succumb to temptations and to, and to again, you know, outside threats to how we think and believe. So that's why gathering is so important. We don't live on an island, but we live in community. And again, the fact that you're here this morning is obviously evidence that you understand that, that you get that, that you value that that you are present here with the rest of the body of Christ. But again, as we know, this is something that become, that's becoming increasingly uh, uncommon. I mean, in our world today, to come to church, to gather, I mean, if you're like, if you're like us, uh, the street we live on, I mean, we look like extraterrestrials on Sunday morning. I mean, right? I mean, we get up, and, you know, it's still early, you know, pretty early. Not, not early enough, as you know, I'm always late. Uh, but we get up pretty early, you know, 
And we get dressed, we, you know, nice dress, a nice you know, set of clothes, you get in the car. And literally every other house on our block is either still asleep or if they're out, they're out gardening or they're out like, you know, walking their dog. Again, fine things to do. But we, just by coming to church, just by gathering as Christians in this building, we look like extraterrestrials, right? I mean, uncommon, exiles. You look like an outcast, a, a weirdo. What are you do, where are you going on Sunday, right? But again, we have to. We're compelled to. Because if we don't, if we live on an island, if we live on our, you know, alone, again, try to, try to live the Christian life alone, we're ultimately, uh, it's too much. It's too much for us to, to do on our own. But it's also uncommon, even inside the church, you could, you could argue, right? That when you gather uh, as a church, if we're not careful, churches can become maybe so large, or they can become, you know, they can take on certain just shapes and manifestations where you're gathering, but are you really known, right? You're gathering, but are you really known? Because it's easy to live anonymously even inside the church, Right? You can come in, you can come out. Maybe it's so large you're not actually known. You know, no one knows your name. And again, so gathering on its own, on the surface, isn't enough. We have to gather into a community where we're actually known, where people know us. They know our names. They know our struggles. They can pray for us. That's why you see here, even in the, in the book of Acts, it's very intentional that the names are mentioned, the names of the apostles, the names of the disciples, even the very number, 120 Wow, they have it down to you know, the exact number of those who gathered, again, in the Christian community. And again, we know this is true because, again, how can we live life apart from the family? How can a, a, a flower take blossom apart from the stalk, from the root? How can one part of the body function if it's not attached to the rest of the body, Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great author, World War II, German theologian and church planter and pastor and ultimately martyr, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has said many times, I've quoted it, that, that the Christ in my brother or the Christ in my sister is stronger than the Christ in me. And again, that's so true. Because when you have your own personal Christian testimony and confession, it's subjected to temptation, to doubts, to all these kinds of things. And you need to be then with a brother or a sister who can speak to you from the outside, who can speak into your moment of doubt, speak into your moment of struggle, and bring that gospel to bear. And so what we see here that the timeless church gathers. It gathers, again, into an accountable, known environment in the midst of a hostile culture. But when the church gathers, the timeless church gathers, what does she do? Our second point, the timeless church prays. Verse 14, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Philippians uh, chapter 4, one of Paul's letters, puts it this way. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition or supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then later he says in 1 Thessalonians, 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The timeless church prays. If I'm honest, uh, that's a convicting point for me to even present. Uh, And these verses here are convicting verses for me. Because I'm one who, if I were to look at the the disciplines, if you will, of the Christian life, prayer is a hard one for me. Uh, Scripture reading has always come easy. I mean, even from when I was a young boy, I I used to love reading the Scripture, kind of love studying theology. I love the knowledge component or the memorization, kind of, you know, intellectual, if you want to call it that, component of our faith. Reading, thinking, uh, expositing, teaching passages, but prayer... Prayer, which is very passive in many ways, isn't about me at all or my knowledge. You know, prayer can be difficult for me, if I'm honest. Uh, Prayer can be difficult for me. And verse 14 here is very convicting in Acts chapter 1 because the way the language speaks of them is not just this like sporadic, you know, when it's needed kind of prayer. Not this just popcorn kind of sporadic kind of prayer. But it's this very, very diligent and, 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 and regiment, regimented, in the right sense of the word, diligent, regular, fervent, uh, intensive prayer. A posture of prayer. A lifestyle of prayer. This formative, devotional prayer life. And that's convicting. Convicting for me. But the more you think about it, the more you think about it, uh, shouldn't it be that way? I mean, shouldn't it be that way? Because what is prayer? What is prayer? I mean, it's petitioning, talking, having audience with the living God of the universe. I mean, think about the psalm that we read in our call to worship, Psalm 148, where he is the God over every king who sits on every throne throughout all of human history, but he's also the king and the creator of the deepest sea creature who you might never see, right? Who we might never even discover. As you've heard before, we know more about space than we do our own, (laughs) the bottom of our own oceans, right? There are creatures there that the human eye will never see. They're too far down, and yet God sees them and knows them immensely. He made them. And so again, what is prayer? Prayer is having audience, having a lifeline having a, you know, a speed dial with this God of all things, the living God of the universe. So why, why wouldn't we pray? What's our excuse? I mean, why, why wouldn't we avail ourselves of that unbelievable privilege and resource? And again, thinking of how you can't function alone in the Christian community. I'm sorry, you can't function apart from the Christian community. Well, the same is true of prayer, right? How can we function as a child of God, as a son and a daughter, if we're not in in communication with our Father? Again, think of human relationships, right? Husband and wife, friend and friend. You know, the, the bedrock of a relationship is communication. And so again, thinking in our own lives, how can we not be like the apostles here in the early portion of Acts and avail ourselves of this incredible privilege to petition, again, the living God, to know that we're heard, to come before him with any and every request as often as necessary. What a privilege. 
what a gift that any time, any moment, anywhere, again, we have audience of the living God of the universe, and we're welcomed and we're heard. But I also found it convicting because they are devoting themselves to prayer, it says, you know, in the upper room, in this kind of small group setting, if you want to think of it that way. But what is this on the heels of? This passage is on the heels of the ascension of Jesus, but also the, the words of Jesus, who, have, who, have, who has told them that they would be witnesses through Judea and Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them in power. In other words, he, they saw this incredible ascension, and they were then given this incredible mission this incredible task, if we're honest, this daunting task to be witnesses to the known world, and yet what is their immediate reaction? What is their immediate reaction? Prayer. Prayer. They don't get together and go, well, man, the Lord has given us quite a task. We better get together on fundraising. We better get together on a task force. We better start, you know, uh, we better, you know, put together a, a, a mission statement and a vision statement and this, and this you know, tenfold plan and start strategizing and all these kinds of things that, again, are well and good, are things that are sometimes required, but what do those things ultimately rest upon? Us. They rest upon our strength. They rest upon our ingenuity, Right? And here, it's so instructive that the apostles, the first witnesses after the resurrection, you know, those who will now uh, be a part of the, the, the birth of the church throughout the whole world, they stop everything they're doing to pray. In fact, it's not like they stop to pray and then go back to doing other things. Prayer is the main thing. <laughs> it's the main course. And I found that so convicting because I thought to myself, how much time do I spend, even as the pastor of this church, you know, Googling and, 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 and researching and trying to come up with a strategy that will, you know, just whip us into shape and, and get us moving, right? And again, there are, there are times where that's required. Don't get me wrong. It's, time, it's times that's required. But how much time, if you were to you know, take my life and make a pie chart, how much of my life is spent towards my own you know, wheel spinning? Or I'm trying to think of the, the, the next greatest idea or strategy or whatever, and how much of that pie chart is spent on prayer? How much of that pie chart is spent just in fervent, diligent prayer before God, before the one whose church it is, before the one whose people we are, before the one whose gospel it is, whose kingdom it is, and who we are just stewards of. Again, how much time do I spend in prayer versus trying to manufacture things in my own strength? And again, you can ask the same question you know, in your own life. Whatever it is, whatever, whatever job you've been called to, whatever task you've been called to, whatever role you've been called to, not only in this church, but even in just your life, how much of it is spent relying on your own strength and your own creativity and ingenuity and how much of it is spent in prayer. In prayer and petition before the living God of the universe. I think it's a question we should all ask ourselves. And so the timeless church gathers, the timeless church prays. And finally, the timeless church relies on the word of God. If you notice, 
uh, in the latter half of the passage, it transitions as Peter goes about uh, replacing Judas, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrays Jesus. And if you notice in this section, it's really more of a congregational meeting, if you will, than a worship service. And Peter's remarks are a more kind of church business than sermon. But what we'll see over and over again in, in the book is that Peter or whomever, whether it's Paul later, will always rely on the Word of God um, when it comes to preaching and when it comes to practice. When it comes to the preaching of the church and the practice of the church, they will always rely on the Word of God. And so I say that because here, you know, Peter is, is not preaching so much. We're going to see that later. But when he does preach, what you'll notice is he takes every effort to always attach what he's saying to the Old Testament, which was the scripture of that time. He never, you know, waxes eloquent on his own. It's never like a 10-step formula to, you know, to, to how to better your life or grow the church. It's never this, like, self-help manual. It's not even him talking about, you know, the current events of the day and kind of giving his opinion. That might be required sometimes in the church, but not often. What does Peter do? He spends painstaking effort and detail to connect what he's saying to the Old Testament scriptures and to prompt them to see how the Word of God is always the leader. The Word of God is always the one who ultimately guides the church. And so the timeless church, whether it's then or now, in her preaching is always connected to the Word of God, that my job as a preacher isn't to get up here and tell you my opinion about, you know, what's happening in the political arena, what's happening, you know, in the, in the, in the current event arena. There might be times, don't get me wrong, where that's, that's required. That's not my job. Now, the job of a preacher, the job of the church is to proclaim the Word of God, to proclaim the good news. You see, people can go to other institutions and hear about the news of the day. But where else can you go and hear the good news? Hear the good news of the gospel. You see, Peter from early on understands that. And you see then that he relies on the word of God in his messaging always. Always. But then, and we see it more pointedly here, Peter and, and the timeless church relies on the word of God in their practice in their practice. And that's, that's the point here. Because you see what's happening again, is that, is that Peter is replacing Judas. And you might wonder, well, why did he even bother? Like, why was that required of him or necessary? And we have to think of a few things. First, if you remember, Peter is likely thinking to himself that if Jesus called 12, then, you know, we should probably go with that, Right? He calls 12, and as we know, Jesus calls 12 to ultimately represent and to supersede even the 12 tribes of Israel, that this is the new you know, people of God, the new kingdom of God. And so to lose one of those tribes, so to speak, to lose one of those apostles is a big deal. It's a big deal. But secondly, and you hear it in the words of Peter when he gives the criteria of what he's looking for, it's super important in this day to make sure that they have as many eyewitnesses to the resurrection 
as possible. Because again, that is going to be a people group or a demographic that is in steady decline. And so as the church is moving forward and taking root, as they're giving witness in the midst of a hostile culture and a hostile environment, they need as many people who have been there, who actually were eyewitnesses, not just to the resurrection, but also to the ministry of Jesus, the miracles, the teaching, who could preserve for the rest of time and the rest of the church forever the witness of Christ, the gospel of Christ. And so Peter then, of course, feels prompted to do this. He feels prompted to do this. But if you notice, he sets here a very important precedent for church leadership for the rest of time. Is that when Peter feels a prompting, when the church leader feels a prompting, feels a guiding or an inclination, where does he go to validate that prompting? God's word. Where does he go to validate what he believes God is leading him to do? God's word. And that's not just true of the church, though it has to be true of her. It's also true in your own life. When you feel the Lord prompting you towards an activity, an endeavor, something, where do you go to validate that that is actually the Lord's will? The word of God. The word of God. That you rely on that. And what Peter does here, if you notice, he actually quotes, we don't have time to look at it, but he quotes from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 in his sort of validation of God's will. And in both of those psalms, it's basically David uh, lamenting in his own life. Remember, King David, he's lamenting at a betrayal in his own life. And there's times where he's with Saul, for instance, in that period, and others, where David is betrayed. And he's lamenting that betrayal, and then, of course, says that someone now must replace that person in his life or in his, you know, his royal court. And so Peter, again, under the, gui- uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is consulting these passages, and he believes, he comes to believe through the Spirit, that if that was true of David, then the son of David, the true king, Jesus, who was also betrayed, must now have that person replaced in their ranks. And so Peter, taking the word of God, comes to that conclusion. Then here's the last thing. He then takes that interpretation, and where does he go? He goes to the people of God. To the people of God. Who at that time you know, were the apostles, who then give their consent as well. And, and that, that's a very important precedent. You might not realize it's happening here. That again, think in your own life, whatever decision that you have before you, think about whatever, whatever, whatever it is you believe God is prompting you towards. What is the posture or the paradigm that we're given in Scripture? That when, when you feel something laid upon your heart, you go to the Word of God, and does the Word of God support it? Is what God is leading you towards something that His Word approves of? That His Word uh, validates? Or are you going against the Word of God? basically. But then, once you take that understanding from the Word of God, where then should you confirm it? Amongst your brothers and sisters. Because as we know, we can interpret things, right, also on an island. We can say, man, the Lord is really teaching me that this passage means this in my life. But because the human heart, or, you know, the human heart is deceptive, where do we go then? We go to our brothers, our sisters, 
again, Christian community, that will help us see if that understanding is true. And so again, there's so much here then that we see that these precedents set for the church. Again, whether it's then or now, the timeless church gathers, she prays, and she relies on the word of God. And again, as we move forward here at Lake Osborne, wherever the Lord takes us, may this be our posture as well. May we gather, may we pray, may we too rely on the word of God for everything that we feel the Lord uh, prompting us towards. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you. We thank you for this, uh, this testimony in your word. We thank you for this story, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this account of your church. And Lord, as we kind of, you know, use it almost as a mirror to, to look at our own church and our own lives, may we, again, see here treasures and resources for us. May we realize that we're connected to the same story, that the, the story of Acts continues beyond chapter 28 down to the day. And so we're the same church, the same people, saved by the same Savior. And so, Lord, would you also bless us, we pray. Would you also send your Holy Spirit to ultimately lead us forward, we pray, just like you led forward those apostles, just like you led forward your church throughout history. May you also lead us forward, Lord. Guide us and bless us all for your glory, all for your kingdom expansion, all for the fact that there are people in this world who need to hear about you. So may we be the vessels to bring that good news. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.